Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Last week was one of the biggest weeks of the term at the Supreme Court. On Wednesday, the justices heard oral argument in an abortion case for the first time since Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh joined the court. The case was a challenge to a Louisiana law that requires doctors who perform abortions to have the right to admit patients at nearby hospitals. Louisiana says the law was intended to protect the health and safety of women seeking abortions by ensuring that doctors who perform abortions are competent and that women who have complications after an abortion are able to get the care that they need. The plaintiffs challenging the law, an abortion clinic and a pair of doctors who perform abortions, counter that the law doesn't provide any benefits to women. But what the law will do, a federal district court found, was leave just one doctor performing abortions for women in Louisiana in the early stages of pregnancy. The Supreme Court agreed to take up the case last year after a federal appeals court in New Orleans rejected a challenge to the law's constitutionality. Joining me to discuss last week's oral arguments is Marcia Coyle of the National Law Journal. Welcome, Marcia. Glad to be with you, Amy. So lawyer Julie Rickleman argued on behalf of the challengers. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, this case is about respect for the court's precedent. Marcia, what did Julie Rickleman mean? Amy, it was really a very straightforward uh, description of the heart of the clinic's case. Uh, Rickleman was telling the justices that in 2016, a 5-3 majority of the Supreme Court struck down a Texas law that also had the 30-mile hospital admitting privileges requirement. And it did so because it found that that requirement had no medical benefit at all and was unduly burdened a woman's access to abortion. Rickleman was telling the court, this is our case, that the Louisiana law was modeled after the Texas law. It also has no medical benefit. Apply, respect the precedent that the lower federal appellate court did not do. So how did the justices react to the argument that the outcome of the Louisiana case is dictated by that Texas case, which was called Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt? There there were a couple of things going on, I thought, during the argument. And I have to say, you would think by now I'd be accustomed to women being on the bench, but they really do bring something extra to arguments like that. And very basically, they bring a knowledge of women's bodies that many men don't have. And so... Uh, We saw Justice Ginsburg, for example, exploring the medical benefits side of this. She said she really could not understand the logic of a 30-mile requirement when most women uh, who have abortions have no complications. They're rare. If they have a complication, she said, it's going to happen at home, and they are unlikely to be near a clinic with a hospital within 30 miles. Uh, Justice Sotomayor she seemed to explore more the burden side of it toward uh, her trial judge experience. She is a bear when it comes to a trial record. So she was able to go doctor by doctor and also with all three lawyers who argued, press them on whether these doctors tried hard to get privileges and why they could not get privileges. Because he's the doctor who does only medical abortions, not surgical. He hadn't done a surgical procedure for over 12 years. And your state's own doc expert testified that it was not likely that he was going to get privileges anywhere 
because he only did medical procedures, never saw a patient, in virtually all of the hospitals, if not all of them, even if there wasn't, like in Tulane, even if there wasn't a minimum number of patients that had to be admitted before you got privileges, you had to see a certain number of patients in the hospital per year to maintain your privileges. And he couldn't meet that requirement. Why does that issue matter, at least to some of the justices? If this requirement stands and doctors can't get admitting privileges for whatever reason, and apparently uh, during the argument it came out that there are numerous reasons why they might not be able to get them, then that prevents access to abortion. I think when you look at this case uh, with two new justices now on the bench and Justice Kennedy gone, you have to think, well, who might make big difference here? Uh, Chief Justice Roberts was in dissent in the 2016 Texas case. So a lot of eyes were focused on him and a lot of eyes were focused on Justice Kavanaugh. The Chief Justice really was probing how that 2016 decision that they made, how strong a precedent is it? Counsel, do you agree that the inquiry under Hallerstadt is a factual one that has to proceed state by state? Your Honor, I think that facts may vary, but what we know is that the district court held a trial here and found that there were no material differences between this case. No, no, I know, but if if the issue, the statutes are uh, on the books in other states, and if the issues are raised there, is the same inquiry uh, required in each case? You have to have the district court examine the availability of specific uh, 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 clinics and the admitting privileges doctors so that the litigation could be, the results could be different in different states. And he was asking all of the lawyers, basically a variation of the same question. Now, if there's no medical benefit, could the burdens vary by state? Uh, maybe the medical benefits do vary by state. Basically, how, how does the court look at this? And uh, the clinic's lawyer very clearly said that it was the consensus of the medical community that there was no medical benefit to these admitting privileges requirements. And so she told the Chief Justice, it was more likely than not, whatever state you pick, it's going to be a burden on access to abortion. Louisiana's lawyer, however, disagreed, as did uh, the Deputy Solicitor General, Jeffrey Wall. Louisiana's lawyer, uh, Elizabeth Merle, the Solicitor General of that state, she said, no, no, now, the burdens may vary, and the benefits may vary. It all depends on the state's regulatory structure. And you have to look at that regulatory structure to see how this plays out. She also accused, really, the clinics of keeping very poor records, uh, even uh, uh, something close to malpractice at times. And again, then she received pushback from some of the justices who looked at the trial record and did not find evidence of that uh, by the trial judge who who heard the trial. So I think Chief Justice Roberts is going to be very key here. Uh, We all sort of look at him as an institutionalist. Uh, Go back to Julie Reichelman's first statement that this is a case about respect for precedent. And not only was, I think, a statement about uh, her case, but it was also sort of a reminder to the court as to what is at stake here for the court itself. You have a fairly recent uh, Supreme Court decision in 2016 
You have two new justices on the bench. What has changed here? If the court backtracks, undermines that 2016 decision in some way, the risk for the court is that the public will look at that new decision and say, well, of course, it's politics. We've got two new justices on the bench who were appointed by President Trump, who promised to appoint justices to who would overrule right away Roe v. Wade. Before they can get to that question about whether or not the, the admitting privileges requirement in Louisiana is constitutional, they have a threshold question to, to address. Absolutely. And that's whether the challengers have a legal right to sue. And the legal term for that is standing. Can you explain what the state's argument is about why the challengers don't have standing and then what the challengers' response is? The state of Louisiana brought this issue to the Supreme Court and says basically that abortion physicians and clinics do not have the right to raise the rights of patients because they don't stand in alignment with them. They have potential conflicts of interest. And the Louisiana lawyer is asking the court to basically find that they just can't represent patients in abortion challenges. Uh, this was really an interesting part of the argument, and it seemed as though Justice Alito was really the only one who took the lead on this. Uh, he quizzed uh, the clinic's lawyer uh, rather strongly about whether there would be what we call standing to sue by these abortion physicians if there were a conflict of interest. And she really uh, stuck to her guns that you have, she says, for almost 40 years and at least four abortion cases in which the Supreme Court has allowed clinics and abortion physicians to raise the rights of their patients in challenges to abortion regulations. Uh, and there were good reasons for that, she said, uh, not the least of which is that those physicians and clinics are facing criminal and civil liability uh, if they don't follow the comply with the requirement of the, the admitted privileges. Uh, so they, in a sense, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, have the right on their own maybe to bring these kinds of lawsuits. But the other reason is a very practical one, and that is that a pregnant woman who needs an abortion for whatever reason has a very narrow window to get that abortion. And is she going to have the time to find a lawyer uh, to go to court, try to get maybe an injunction to block the requirement that's, that's uh, uh, burdening her access, go through a trial, and still be able to get the abortion that she may need uh, or want. So uh, third party, they call it third party standing. And it didn't appear that uh, Justice Alito was getting a lot of traction. I didn't, in fact, uh, Justice Breyer interjected at one point to say that he had counted at least eight abortion cases where the court had allowed this uh, uh, clinics and physicians to bring these lawsuits. And he said, you know, what, what are we going to do? Now, are we going to go overturn all of them? Uh, you know, if we say you can't do it here, then we have to say that all the others, you know, were wrong. And do we want to go back 40 years? Do we want to revisit, re-examine Marbury versus Madison? <laughs> Justice Breyer can be very dramatic. And uh, so uh, the Deputy Solicitor General, Jeff Wall, he responded, I think, uh, a little more clearly for um, Louisiana on this issue, in which he said, look, you've never had a case in which there was a conflict. 
between the doctors and the patients. Well, what kind of conflict, he was asked. Well, doctors have an interest in not being regulated. Patients have an interest in getting good health care. So that's the conflict. But Justice Ginsburg then came back and asked uh, the clinic's lawyer, is there any kind of a conflict like that in this case? And she argued, no, there wasn't none at all. So that's very much a threshold question. But I, like I said, the only one who, other person who I think might be open to that would be Justice Thomas, who in the Texas decision in 2016 wrote a dissent, uh, dissenting opinion that focused solely on that issue, saying that the court appeared to have favored rights and abortion was one of them and that he felt there was no um, grounding in the Constitution or the or text structure, whatever, that would allow this kind of uh, standing by abortion physicians and clinics. Going into the oral argument, I thought maybe that this might have been, the standing argument might have been a way for the justices to sort of dodge the thorny issue about whether or not the Louisiana law was constitutional. And, And to be sure, the standing question would itself be fairly significant. But as you say, coming out of it, it certainly didn't seem, at least after the oral argument, as if there were five votes to say that the, the challenges do not have standing. It certainly would be a way for the court to get rid of abortion cases <laughs> if it was right. inclined to do right. so. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. And, and then again, you never know what goes on behind the That's, closed conference that door. That is certainly the case. Um, The Louisiana abortion case wasn't the only big case last week. On Tuesday, the justices heard oral argument in a case called SELA Law versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The case is a challenge to the constitutionality of the CFPB's leadership structure. The bureau is headed by one director who was appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate to serve a five-year term. Once in office, the director can only be removed by the president for inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance. This is a somewhat unusual case because the CFPB is arguing before the Supreme Court that the CFPB structure is unconstitutional. So who argued that the CFPB is constitutional? When you have a situation like that, the justices usually appoint a lawyer to represent the other argument. And they did so in this case. They picked uh, one of the top members of the Supreme Court bar, uh, and it was sort of an unusual choice because I think you would have seen Paul Clement, who is a partner in Kirkland and Ellis, and a former Bush, uh, George W. Bush solicitor general, probably would have been born home on the, the other side. Sure. Uh, but he did uh, take on the appointment that the court asked of him, and he argued about the con- constitutionality of the, uh, what they call, four-cause removal restriction right. on the president and uh, for the CFPB director. So what are, just, if can you briefly summarize, what are the main arguments on each side of the case for and against the constitutionality of the CFPB? Well, CELA Law is a law firm, and uh, among its services, it does debt collection. The uh, Bureau uh, wanted, issued an investigative demand. They wanted documents to see uh, I guess they had some concern about its practices. Seal uh, Law refused to comply and then challenged the, turned around and challenged the constitutional structure of the CFPB. Seal uh, Law argues that this uh, four cause removal restriction on the president uh, really interferes 
with the uh, obligation, authority, duty of the president to uh, run the executive branch and execute the laws of the United States. The other side of this is that um, the CFPB, uh, I'm sorry, Paul Clement uh, is, is arguing that, well, he's arguing two things. First of all, he, he'd like to see this case go away because CELA uh, law right now, the uh, allegedly the investigative demand from the Bureau has been issued by an acting head of the CFPB that the president appointed and can remove at will. So uh, Mr. Clement feels that there really is no harm here to seal the law and the court should not reach the constitutional question. But if it does reach the constitutional question, he points out that um, for cause removal is uh, not as uh, draconian as it may sound, that uh, the court has upheld for cause removal for multi-member agencies uh, that have multi-heads uh, and um, uh, serves a purpose. It's not as restrictive on the president's ability to run the executive branch. Congress wanted an independent uh, bureau here, and uh, it didn't want to give it all, you know, total independence, uh, but it wanted it to be free of influence uh, from outside influence, banks and others. It regulates financial, well, it, it uh, yeah, it regulates overseas financial markets. So uh, this was Congress's determination that this was a moderate restriction. And here too, you saw again, you know, you, you saw it play out on both sides. It seemed the court was somewhat divided. You see uh, Justice Ginsburg, who actually called it a very moderate restriction on the president and prevented him from removing somebody on a whim, as well as she said, protecting consumers, which she said was the whole purpose of the creation of the Bureau and what Congress intended. Uh, on the other hand, you saw uh, Justice Kavanaugh concerned about how this works in practice, that you would have, you could have the head of the CFPB being carried over into a new presidential term and working with a president who has a totally different concept of how consumer protection should evolve and develop in this country. And then that president could be hamstrung in terms of uh, getting his or her policies carried out for maybe one, two, even three years of his first or her first term. So there was this this divide. Um, uh, you could see on the court that they were struggling with, with that. And as well as just as the Chief Justice explored a bit, you know, how, how, how big of a restraint is it really on the president uh, to have uh, for-cause removal? Now, what is the meaning of that? Is, is it a, a real tough standard that, that he can't or she can't meet? Or can we write something that interprets it as a lesser standard? And then he received pushback too, because if you make it a weaker standard, then you're weakening the independence of not only the CFPB, but the other agencies in government that are uh, do have for-cause removal. And he even pushed back himself later on. He, did. The he sort of gave it up at the end of the argument. It was sort of like, oh, well. Yeah, everyone soon. Um, and as in the Louisiana abortion case, there's a second question. Yes. Um, the CELA law and the CFPB agree that the structure is unconstitutional, but they don't agree on what should happen if the court concludes that That's the structure right. is unconstitutional. They don't agree on the remedy. 
Um, can you explain yeah. a little bit about that? Uh, the CFPB was created as part of the Dodd-Frank uh, Wall Street Financial Reform Act. And uh, that act has what we call a severability clause, which basically says if there's a provision in this law that's unconstitutional, you can cut it out and the rest of the act will stand and operate. We're all about to be very familiar with severability in the Affordable (laughs) Care Act context. Yes, exactly, exactly. So um, the uh, CELA law uh, looks at that severability clause pretty much, I think, uh, Canon Shanmugam called it a presumption of severability, that it's, it's not binding on you. It sort of informs your discussion of whether it's the proper remedy. And he thinks it is not the proper remedy, that uh, this the title that creates the CFPP should fall if the structure is unconstitutional. Uh, whereas the Solicitor General of the United States, Noel Francisco, says, no, 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 no. This clause is unambiguous. It is clear. And so does Paul Clement say this as well, that if, um, you know, you, the presumption of severability, that was the old days, how you used to look at severability clause. <laughs> the new days, <laughs> we look at the text. The text, we're all textualists now. In fact, even Justice Kavanaugh said it was the old days. What about the text? And uh, so uh, Francisco did find that that was the way to go. The text is unambiguous. You sever it. End of story. How big are the stakes in this case? I think they're they're, they're quite large uh, because they reach beyond the CFPB to the other agencies uh, that, that do have um, uh, for-cause removal restrictions on them. But I think they're also, uh, the stakes are high for Congress. If Congress wants to create agencies that have a certain amount of independence and insulation from outside influence, how does it do it? And doesn't it have a right to do it? Uh, Justice Kagan came back to that during the argument in which she said, uh, look, you know, these are difficult decisions. And really, shouldn't we just, you know, I don't know what's the right decision here. Uh, you know, who, who should have how much power or, or, or not enough power? Shouldn't we leave it to the branches that are supposed to work this out? And so uh, I think judicial modesty. Yes, definitely. Present <laughs> <laughs> <it for> judicial <laughs> modesty. It depends on your perspective, exactly. right? Uh, so I think uh, the stakes are high for Congress too, which is trying, at least recently, it seems to reassert its uh, authority and interest in these issues. We saw uh, the general counsel of the House argue during the CFPB argument. He had very little time, but the fact that he was just there was, I think, an attempt to show the court that Congress cares and, you know, don't forget about us. All right. Well, we won't forget about these cases. Marcia Coyle, thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure, Amy. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and Edith Roberts.